Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. This is part two of a two-part episode we recorded with Stan the Rhino Efforting. If you have not listened to part one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one first, just so you have proper context. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hey, Stan, I want to just jump in here and ask, as you touched on uh, the whole thing with digestion. And one thing that I see pop up a lot when you get into these like nutrition debates or arguments is that like someone will say, well, humans are more similar than they are different. And therefore, my diet of choice must work well for this person. And with you working with so many different people on a regular basis, do you have like a, a messaging that you use when people kind of come in with that, uh, that thought process that because my vegetarian diet or my keto diet works so well for me, it must work just wonders with everyone else? Yeah, some people do. I'm real cautious not to do that. What works for me may not necessarily work for everyone and what works for most people may not necessarily work for you. Uh, and you have to be cautious to understand that everybody's an individual. And, and that's the challenging part about this whole business is that people do present with different genetic predispositions and different um, you know, ailments, uh, digestive disorders uh, and the like. Uh, and preferences is another thing, just taste preference and different digestion. I, I've never been able to eat onions or garlic and other people really enjoy those foods. Um, I have a, uh, you know, so the answer to that is yes. I, I do have folks that, that, that uh, would, would think that their diet is a one-size-fits-all. I'm cautious not to do that, not to paint with a broad brush. I try and back away. At, at some point, they need calories, and they need adequate protein, and they need, you know, some fats. They don't necessarily need carbohydrates. It's not a requirement. Uh, uh, but having said that, at, at some point, you know, I've got to get rid of the things that could potentially be causing harm. And I don't know what those are initially. And so, yeah, you're going to start out with some elimination and, and, and that, that thing. But the last thing you want to eliminate is the most easily digestible, nutrient dense, highly bioavailable food, which is red meat. If there is a superfood, it is not an acai berry or kale. You, you cannot feed somebody that food and expect them to live more than a week. Uh, it, it might be of benefit for some, you know, small additive reason, you know, micronutrient reason, uh, but it's not a driver of calories. You, you have to have adequate calories to maintain lean body mass and energy. And the most nutrient dense one is going to be red meat. That's the one that I start with. Unless you've been bit by a tick, whatever that is. Uh, the Lone Star tick. <laughs> yeah, unless you've been bit by the Lone Star tick, the chances are that red meat is going to be the most beneficial food you could possibly eat with the least potential of problems. The, generally speaking, the only people that I've ever seen have a problem with red meat, have a problem with um, low HCL. 
low stomach acid. And that's something that needs to be addressed anyhow. If you have low stomach acid, you're not absorbing any nutrients. You're not getting you know, enough protein, enough minerals, calcium, magnesium. Uh, so if, if that's a problem, then that needs remedied right out of the gate. And I, I talked about that in my, in my rant on, on uh, acid reflux and the like. So I start with red meat. And, and uh, if I have kind of a list of things that I avoid just to kind of help people, you know, get an idea of what's in the vertical diet. And I list all these things. And, you know, grains is one. If you've got digestion issues, that's one of the first things I, I pull out. And that's not because I think everybody has celiac disease. And, and certainly it could be from for phytic acid. I don't think the grains that we're eating are uh, the whole grains that we used to eat. Uh, most of it's highly processed. Some cereals I posted recently, um, Sally Fallon's video talking about extruded, high temperature, high pressure, uh, you know, denatures the proteins. Um, I eliminate grains and not because I don't think that there's people in blue zones that eat grains and live to a hundred. Uh, that happens. I don't think grains is the driver of that. Uh, I think those people who generally, you know, are the healthy user by supplies and they just tend to smoke less and drink less and weigh less and exercise more. And, uh, I think that's the primary driver when you, when you talk about blue zones, particularly with, uh, you know, uh, well, so grains I pull out and again, it's because they're hard to digest and, and I want to put something in there that, that is easier for my athletes to digest. And that includes oats. Uh, I found them to be hard for me to digest, hard for my athletes to digest. Now, you could soak and ferment them and make them a little easier to digest if you wanted to do that. Uh, use a little um, uh, yogurt or apple cider vinegar and ferment them so that you could digest them better. But, you know, it's certainly not something I start with. Uh, processed vegetable oils is a big one that I eliminate. And I think we're all pretty agreeable, agreed on that. It's really unfortunate what happened uh, with the uh, you know, the American Heart Association of Procter and Gamble back in the 50s, uh, you know, pushing that on to people uh, primarily to, to promote, uh, you know, margarine and Crisco and those kinds of things. And Kellogg's was, of course, on board with all of that so they could uh, demonize cholesterol and get rid of eggs so they could sell you more cereal. And, uh, that's water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned. I think we're headed the right direction with that. Sugar alcohols I take out. I did a video on, on sugar alcohols and sharding your pants where I, I talk about how horrible it is to try and digest those things. And it's in most gums and protein bars. Uh, invariably, I go to these expos and, and people run over and they start eating peanut butter balls and protein bars. And then the next thing you know, they're racing to the bathroom. Uh, it, but it occurs naturally, even in things like avocados, and depending on the individual and the dose dependency. Um, you know, a, a, a big bowl of, uh, of uh, avocado is, it could potentially end up racing to the bathroom because of mannitol, and that's sorbitol, xylitol, all the alls that uh, I take out of the diet. Legumes is another one, and just because they're really hard to digest, and maybe if you soak them and you boil them soft enough and you use uh, a dose that's, uh, you know, acceptable. Uh, I always talk about dose dependency. The same is true with milk. If you have a lactose intolerance or... Uh, you know, a casein allergy, uh, you may end up having to use yogurt because it's lower in lactose. And if that doesn't work, and you can use a cheese to, you know, an aged cheddar cheese to get your calcium uh, that's generally lactose free. And so it's dose dependent, but I can't feed a lot of legumes to my athletes. And uh, as carbohydrates are required, if I need to put carbs in them, I'm going to put a much easier to digest carbs. Brown rice because of the phytic acid, same thing, garlic and onions I mentioned. Um, some people don't like the fact that I exclude uh, uh, 
high raffinose vegetables, the broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, because they're high FODMAP, fermentable oligodye, monosaccharides, the cruciferous vegetables. And uh, that's because they, uh, they tend to point to um, anti-inflammatory benefits of some cruciferous vegetables. But um, you can get low gas vegetables. I, I'll throw in some carrots for the fiber, some raw carrots. And, uh, if, uh, if that's something that helps people with their digestion and maybe a, a little bit of spinach. Now, I know people that have uh, a predisposition to, um, to kidney stones may not be able to tolerate the oxalates, but if you get adequate sodium, there's very uh, low likelihood that you'll have kidney stones. Generally, when people are in, end up with kidney stones, they're sodium deficient. And uh, I remedy that ASAP. I get them to salt all their meals and take sodium before and after training. So those are low gas vegetables that you could throw in if you wanted the extra potassium or needed a little bit of fiber in the diet. Um, I'll throw in iodine, obviously. Uh, I tend to avoid coffee and not because I don't think there's potentially some health benefits, but I think that people abuse it to compensate for deficiencies in uh, hydration, nutrition, and sleep. I don't think that, I think coffee is used as a crutch to overcome lack of sleep, to overcome a sodium deficiency or, or general dehydration. They get to the gym and they're tired and they use coffee and now their adrenaline is trying to power the workout instead of adequate blood volume from sodium intake, instead of adequate sleep and instead of adequate nutrition. Um, and coffee has some other issues that I'm concerned about. I, I'm, I am concerned about the peristalsis uh, gives some people diarrhea, um, you know, can bind to sodium and magnesium and, and cause that to be depleted. Uh, some people get acid reflux. It causes the esophageal sphincter to relax. Um, so there are some other issues. And you just, it, again, it's, it's individualistic and dose dependent. If they want to use it, I, I make recommendations as to when and what to watch out for. Um, I, I do recommend caffeine as part of a potential rehydration uh, um, recommendation that I make in my diet when if um, if you've got an athlete training twice a day say a UFC fighter or a, a, a crossfitter or even Hawthorne Shaw when they've got three or five events a day uh, the CrossFit National Championships is another example of, of people who have multi, multiple events a day then I'll use a little bit of caffeine with sodium and two carbohydrate sources to dramatically improve or increase the uh, rate glycogen's rate of uh, uptake and absorption um, there seems to be a generally agreed upon a limit of about one gram per minute of glycogen absorption. And if you add a second carbohydrate source, you can get that to two grams. You add salt, you might be able to get that to three grams. And if you add caffeine, you might be able to get that to four grams. And when rehydration and timing is important, then I try and optimize and maximize that. So I don't know if that's too much to throw on the wall at once, but that's it kind of sums up my, my don't eat list. Uh, and I always have to caution and say that, that it's generally for uh, digestion problems and not necessarily for longevity or, uh, you know, to me, it's about improving the quality of life. Hey, Stan, I, I, I mean, just great stuff. And I, I tell you, I don't know how much time you have, but I, there's so much things we can cover. But a couple things. One, you'd, earlier you'd mentioned Nina Tykolz, and I, and I ran into her this weekend and we had a little chat and some interesting stuff. There are going to be a couple of systemic reviews done on red meat coming out in the next year or two, which the results are going to be either red meat, there's nothing wrong with it, or it's very good for you. So we're going to be seeing that in the literature, which will further bolster you know, our, our ability to, to get out there and promote this stuff. 
The second thing I'd like to say, and, and I talked about this when I, when I first met Mark Bell, I you know, guys like you guys that are in this space, in the social media space, would have such a tremendous following and are influencing a lot of people. In addition to making people, you know, Mark saying the world a better place to live and, 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 and you doing your stuff and taking care of all these high-level athletes, you do have a tremendous effect on the overall health. And I know that's not your intention, but it's a side effect is that people get healthier by listening to people like you. And I, and I, I commend you guys, because as a physician, I'm toiling away, uh, you know, when I was when I was practicing full time, I was toiling away making a little minor difference in someone's knee pain, whereas you guys have, you know, maybe 1%, 2% difference on their overall quality of life, whereas you guys are often taking people and literally making 100% difference, literally regaining people's life. And, and that's what's happened to me since I've joined the social media sort of thing. And I see this and it's really, really, and I, I get that. It's inspiring to you. It all, you know, it's emotional because you see these people's stories and you change their life. And even if it's not, they they were the you know Bradshaw or, or Hafthor wins World Strongest Man, but it's, it's probably just as exciting for you to see this person that was, you know, depressed, debilitated, suicidal, or whatever, and then they came back and now they're in the gym, they're lifting and they're living their life again. I think, I think that's just great. But here's the question I wanted to talk about because we have seen, uh, and, and probably because. Uh, Big athletes, big guys, bodybuilders are so much more in the in the in the general knowledge. You know, we've seen guys who've been bodybuilders that have died young. You know, guys like Mike Matarazzo. We've got guys like, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of strongman competitors. All you know, Jean Paul Sigmarsson. We've got, you you know what it is. You've got all these big guys that were that were eating a lot of food, eating a lot of meat. Likely some of them and even taking steroids. Obviously. You know, it's no secret. Bodybuilders take steroids. Strongmen take steroids. And so we see those things pointed as the blame. At the same time, I know there's a lot of guys out there that are old-time bodybuilders that are still going strong and looking good, and, and they're still kicking butt. So what is the difference between those two guys? Do you think it has to do with, I mean, you know, some of it, it attracts an extreme life cycle. And you just some people that are just idiots. I mean, they're just out there doing crazy stuff, you know. And, you know, abuse, you know just heavily abusing drugs. You know, they've got a lifestyle you know, maybe recreational drugs, all this stuff, or their diet was crap. I mean, they're eating this bloating, possibly metabolic syndrome diet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know, you know, you have, you know, in some ways advocated in some, some cases for, you know, some sort of steroid use for some, some situations. And at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. And, and, and just kind of put that into perspective, because it's interesting to me, I'm a guy that's never used this stuff. I mean, I don't care. I don't really judge. I just say, you know, you got to figure out, you got to make your own personal decisions. So I'd like you to talk about lifespan because we hear a lot about mTOR is going to shorten your lifespan if you stimulate and I disagree and I, and I think there's good reason uh, to dis disagree with that but what are your thoughts on on being a you know a guy who's 50 years old and still squatting 600 pounds for for multiple reps like I saw you do the other day or you know deadlifting 600 for 10 or you know what what are your thoughts on that are you gonna are you gonna die earlier does it matter to you or anyway it's a long rant let me hear you comment on that stuff Stan well it, it does matter and you know, to your first point about as an influencer, and I take that as a big responsibility, uh, my actions and my influence on others' actions. Uh, and so that's why I'm constantly out making sure that I'm, I'm uh, you know, staying educated and staying uh, and keeping my message right. Uh, you know, more recently, I attended a seminar by the folks at Barbell Medicine uh, Jordan Fagenbaum and Austin Baraki do an, a, just a, a, a fantastic job. It's two days, 12 hours a day, 24 hours. So they cover, you know, a whole host of things from pain management to general health, cholesterol, blood pressure, 
the whole likes. And, um, it, you know, I, I make sure that I continue to, to read uh, all the available literature, I think, that's, that's reputable. As I've mentioned, the names of many of the influencers that I, that I follow in terms of general health and, and performance as well. Uh, and then share that information with, you know, obviously I, I try and use that information to improve my performance, but also my general health and then share that with, with my clients. With respect to, uh, well, first day, first and foremost, on your second point, uh, I don't advocate uh, the use of anabolics. If someone is hypogonadal, which I was diagnosed as in 1990, uh, after years of training and, and even competing in bodybuilding, um, uh, I had, uh, I was hypogonadal. I had a, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, varicocele. I'm familiar with that. Varicocele. Not all that uncommon. Uh, it doesn't always result in uh, hypogonadism. Uh, but it's a, it's a pooling of, of the blood from a, uh, blood vessel in the testicles. And, uh, and I was diagnosed hypogonadal. I had a testosterone level of about 75. And I was, uh, you know, I was 1989, 1990, and I'd already competed in bodybuilding shows. And so um, I did start what would be considered uh, hormone replacement therapy. And then at some point, as I started to, to get more into competing, powerlifting and bodybuilding, I would use super physiological doses of, uh, of testosterone and other performance enhancing drugs. Uh, and, you know, I would say this with respect to that is that, uh, you know, we're all on an even playing field at that point. And I competed in sports that were untested, uh, IFBB bodybuilding and, and powerlifting and untested federations. And uh, I think that my ability to go from where I was to where I got uh, on that even playing field and to be able to, to reach the level that I did ahead of many other competitors using the, the same protocols was that I was a lot more disciplined with respect to my consistency and nutrition, and all these other things and sleep uh, uh, that, I, that I certainly promote now. Um, I, and I don't, you know, in normal doses, which I've seen the research on 10 year studies using 600 milligrams a week to show that there's no increase in prostate cancer, there's uh, no increase in, in um, adverse effects on, on cardiovascular disease and cholesterol. Uh, there's plenty of, of good research now to suggest that, that hormone replacement therapy to a point uh, is quite healthy and, and actually um, maintaining a, a condition of, of hypogonadism increases all-cause mortality and uh, depression and a host of other things that you might end up taking medication for. Um, and so, I, you know, I would highly recommend anybody who uh, was either hypogonadal or even uh, hypothyroidism would get that remedy because it affects so many other, uh, not just quality of life, but potentially uh, length of life, but, you know, all-cause mortality. So, uh, and I look at testosterone much the same way as I look at thyroid supplementation or progesterone or anything like that. Um, if, if your system's not working correctly, then you, you're going to want to remedy that problem. With respect to people who abuse uh, performance enhancing drugs, which I've done on many occasions, uh, with full vision, uh, having gotten blood tests on a monthly basis, I've seen the effects of it. I've seen how it affected my cholesterol in the acute sense. It's gone from bad to, to good as I've gone, used higher and lower doses of testosterone over the years. I've seen how it affected, uh, how growth hormone affected my, uh, my blood sugars, my hemoglobin A1C with, uh, you know, insulin resistance as a result of trying growth hormone. I've seen how 
different drugs had different effects on my body. AST, ALT, my liver enzymes, uh, depending on certain orals that I was using, how it affected my appetite, how it affected my kidney and liver function. Um, and I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, so in addition to the monthly blood tests for 10 years, uh, I've had a CAC, a coronary artery cal calcification score. I've, I've gone in and had uh, sonograms of my liver and heart and kidneys, and uh, you name the test, I've had it done over the years. I fortunately was in a position to be able to do that. Most people aren't, unfortunately. They don't get blood tests. It can be very expensive. Um, I do recommend, at least initially, that, that most folks I work with do a blood test, and then when we can identify some, some things that need remedied, we employ some sort of uh, you know, diet or lifestyle change to, to help remedy that problem. And then uh, maybe 60 days later, test just that particular item to keep the cost down instead of running a $400 panel again. Um, and if people are concerned about, uh, you know, anything that they should, uh, should, should make a, you know, a concerted effort to fix those problems. The vast majority of, of the serious health issues that I've seen goes back to, um, I think the BMI. I think that the vast majority of people who suffer from serious long-term problems uh, end up just carrying too much fat for too long. Their, their body mass index, they end up with obesity, uh, and that could be a combination of, of you know, your body fat and your waist measurement. Uh, I see former bodybuilders or powerlifters or strong men, uh, you know, trying to stay over 300 pounds for too long. I, I maintain a you know, less than 12% most of the time. I don't think that your long-term health has anything to do with your weightlifting. I think it's a benefit, it benefits. Uh, there's, there's very little detriment unless and until uh, you suffer from injuries. And I think that that generally happens just from, uh, you know, people not being very smart about their training. And, and I'm a perfect example of that. There's times at which I've tried to max out on an accessory exercise as recently as a month ago, doing stiff-legged deadlifts with 600 pounds. Now that's stupid. Uh, and I've done, you know, had plenty of examples of those things over the years, but we know that lean body mass is, is has a direct relationship to, um, to longevity. And especially in older populations, the, the ones that have the less muscle die faster. Uh, they recover slower from falls and injuries. Um, so, you know, and I'm a big believer in hormesis. I think that, that you know, use it or lose it. Um, I found for myself, and particularly if you watch my rants on, on I broke my back and uh, keys to pain-free knees, I had chronic tendonitis in my knees for 10 years, uh, and I tried everything, uh, you know, every injection, PRP and stem cell and PPC-157 and TB-500, you name it. Uh, I, I inject prolotherapy, uh, and it didn't really heal until I stepped back and used some of uh, what I've felt were Dr. Stuart McGill's guidelines, and that was to eliminate the source of the pain, um, uh, find pain-free movements, and move often, move early and often. And I just pumped tons and tons and tons and tons of blood into my knees. I was doing three times a day. I was doing a recumbent bike sprints with a little bit of tension, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. And I would get off the bike and have a full pump in my legs and knees. And it was all eccentric loading. So it wasn't doing much damage in terms of the concentric loading. It wasn't very heavy. I increased my sodium, my vitamin D3. Uh, I think those were, were critical. And now my knees are 100%. You see me walking out and squatting 600 pounds for reps with no knee wraps or sleeves. I have no pain. I used to limp out of the gym every workout. Now I, it doesn't, I don't feel them at all. I can get on my knees and play with my kids. 
Um, so I just think that, that generally when people have adverse effects from, uh, you know, maybe formerly competing as a bodybuilder or a strongman or a powerlifter, um, I think generally they haven't, they haven't taken care of themselves. They're carrying too much body fat. They're just too large. Uh, some people who, who die younger, uh, I've noticed when the autopsies come out, they tend to have had a pre-existing condition, uh, a heart valve issue that they aggravated and certainly accelerated with all of the weight gain and the testosterone and that the like. You can experience um, some, uh, you know, um, left, you know, ventricular hypertrophy, of course. Uh, but the same thing can happen in, in the opposite respect if you're a marathon runner. You have to be concerned about, uh, you know, the, the, the heart, the stress that has on the heart. You see those folks sometimes will have, um, you know, cardiac events in their 50s from uh, just from stressing the heart. So I, I think that the, the best thing that folks can do is, is to exercise some sort of preventative medicine by getting uh, a blood test or uh, an EKG or some sort of, uh, you know, medical intervention just to at least look and see if you have a predisposition or if you're accumulating stress that may uh, cause problems long term. That's kind of the reason why we get cholesterol checks and, you know, look at our, our inflammation markers and the like. Uh, look at our blood sugars because those are all signs of potential long-term problems that I don't think most of these people are, have, have bothered to intervene. And I, I've intervened. I've brought my cholesterol down. I've brought my blood sugars down. My HA1C was 5.7 for, for a number of years, and it's down to 5.1. Uh, my resting glucose uh, or my fasting blood glucose is down in the low 80s. Now, 83, 82, 80, uh, generally speaking. My PSA is below one. My HA1C was 0.47 last time I tested. My ALT was in the 20s. Um, you know, those are all things that, that uh, markers that could be an indicator of long-term, uh, you know, mortality events. And, and also the fatty liver is, I think, a huge one in terms of uh, how its, its effects long-term can be on blood sugars and everything else. So generally speaking, I'll go back to what I said about weight loss in general. 95% of these problems are, uh, can be remedied by weight loss in general. And I think that these guys carry too much body fat for too long and probably don't exercise to any significant degree. Uh, and that, I think, ultimately, and just keep eating like they used to eat when they were training. Uh, and therein lies the problem. And I don't think it has much to do with what they eat as it's, it's, it's opposed to how much. I think that they're just too fat. And, I, and you know, I'm, uh, I'm willing to say that, that that's probably the vast majority of problems. And people who have used performance-enhancing drugs also in many cases in the bodybuilding industry, as I've seen, as we saw with Paul DeMeo and his heroin problem, and, and uh, you know, friends of mine, they tend to use other recreational drugs as well cocaine and, and the like, and, uh, which I think do have potentially significant uh, mortality effects. So I hope that answered the question. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. 
They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Stan, that was great. Um, there is a, a couple other things that I wanted to, wanted to, to just kind of touch if you've got time. Um, one of the, I saw a snippet of you talking, and I can't remember who, but it was something that and I, I tend to agree with, you know, in, in the context of getting leaner and preserving muscle mass is you're not a big fan. And, and Zach, this is kind of Zach runs marathon. So he's out of the discussion here, but, um, when you're, when you, when you talk about getting lean for a contest, you're not a big advocate for doing hours and hours of cardio as used to be, you know, it used to be the body would get up at five o'clock in the morning, spend an hour walking on the treadmill. And what you, you seem to do is train harder, heavier, you know, big compound movements, and then just adjust it with diet, fuel it enough so that you have, have enough food in there. But can you talk a little bit about your strategy for that, you know, as opposed to the cardio? And then also yeah. uh, and a little bit about meal frequency, Stan, because you, you had mentioned about the three to five hour, because we had, I know you're familiar with John Anderson. You know, I, I know you ran it, you know, I, you saw him a couple weeks ago, just like I did. And he is a big proponent of eating every two hours. And, he, and he's, again, he's eating basically an all-meat diet. And, and his thing was, I get a lot of beef in and then I add protein through chicken and, and egg whites and, and whatever and turkey or whatever. You know, once you hit those micronutrient requirements, then it's just adding more protein. So talk a little bit about meal frequency and then the, the, the essentiality or lack of essentiality of cardio. Okay, that's a great topic. And I'm gonna say this across the board for everyone uh, because the research is pretty clear. And, and there was a great video done recently by the folks at Healthcare Triage. I'm not sure if you follow those folks, but they do an incredible job over there. So uh, MDs, some, some research professionals that uh, put together these videos. Uh, with respect to weight loss in general and, and how much uh, cardio contributes to that, and it's a tiny, tiny piece. Exercise activity thermogenesis, as you know, is a very small part of the calories that we burn a day vast majority of your basal metabolic rate, uh, followed by your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and then your, your uh, thermic effect of food. Those are all far more important, and probably a small little percentage is based on exercise. And what the video was talking about is that when you take two groups of people uh, who diet, the group that exercises, there's hardly a measurable difference in terms of fat loss in the, between the two groups that you're better off focusing on dieting alone. And we've always heard that you can't out-train the bad diet. And that becomes even more apparent with respect to just adding cardio to, obviously you recommend it in terms of health, but as it pertains to weight loss, it doesn't seem to have a significant effect, both at six months and one year. Having said that, the type of weight you lose may matter. And that matters with sleep as well. When you start cutting sleep and you're losing weight, you're losing more muscle than fat or an equivalent amount. That's the point. The type of weight that you lose matters. So when you exercise, uh, my goal would be to lose just, or when I diet and cut weight, my goal is to lose just fat, not muscle. So the type of exercise I do is important. And general cardio, steady state cardio, walking on the treadmill for 40 minutes, does nothing to stimulate muscle tissue. And so, and quite the contrary, it may even 
uh, be a stimulus that suggests to your body that that muscle is heavy, has a high oxygen demand, has a high nutrient demand, and is not terribly efficient to do the 40-minute cardio sessions. Um, and so it, 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 you may actually lose size. And that was my experience. When I did cardio, my legs got smaller. Uh, and, and again, this is coming from somebody who's gained and lost weight and competed at a very high level many, many, many times and utilized different methods to do so. And so I could, I could see the effects that these things had on me. There's your N of one. Um, but what I've noticed with the athletes as well that I work with is I, I specifically use the stimulus that gets me the response that I want, which is hypertrophy training. I lift weights and I don't lift light weights for lots of repetitions that doesn't stimulate muscle maximally. Uh, what we're seeing now in the research, when you look at the stuff that Brett Contreras has done uh, and the stuff that uh, Brad Schoenfeld's done and, and others, um, in order to get maximal muscle fiber recruitment, you need to do one of two things. You need to uh, lift at 85% of your max. That's going to definitely recruit 100% of your muscle fibers. Uh, or you need to lift at a lighter percentage, but to near failure. And as you get closer and closer to failure, recruiting more and more of your muscle tissue, maximal muscle fiber recruitment is going to be one of the primary uh, drivers of hypertrophy. And yes, it's hard to gain muscle while you're dieting. So the goal is to maintain it. And the way to do that is to continue to train hard. I think you should train even harder. Um, if, if you're trying to burn extra calories, you can certainly do that lifting weights. I'll actually add in a second hypertrophy session. Um, I'll, I'll come in in the morning like I did with flex and I'll train for 40 minutes and I'll come in at night and train for 30. I'm a big believer in diminishing returns. I'm a big believer in you can train long or you can train hard, but you can't do both. And so I much prefer to come in and blast for 40 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night than trying to do an hour and a half session once a day. Also because I think it, it gives you more opportunity to stimulate all of the hormones and all of the, um, uh, at a micronutrient level, all of the things that can uh, contribute to increasing muscle uh, or maintaining muscle. I say the same thing, you know, insulin, uh, testosterone, all of those things that, that uh, you know, happens when you're training, growth hormone, etc. I do the same thing with the only cardio I do. And, and mind you, weight training can definitely satisfy your quote unquote, cardiovascular uh, benefit for your heart, your VO2 max, uh, you're, you're definitely going to get your heart rate up for an extended period of time when you're doing hypertrophy training. Having said that, I still do the 10 minute walks three times a day. But I don't do them necessarily to burn calories to lose weight, as mentioned, uh, you know, from the video I, I discussed. Uh, uh, it's just not that big of a benefit. I do it to um, improve digestion, to increase recovery, uh, you know, increased metabolism. So I, 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 I do that both in weight loss and weight for weight gain people. I do the three 10 minute walks a day, but I don't really consider it cardio necessarily. Um, at the barbell medicine seminar, uh, one of the things they talked about was uh, what's your need for cardiovascular fitness? You know, they, they say you need 10,000 steps a day or you need, um, you know, 30 minutes a day or a total 150 minutes a week really what the measurement is, is, is your VO2 max. I think they, they pegged it at about seven metabolic equivalents. That's the ability to walk up four flights of stairs. You can get that from three 10 minute walks a day. So, and there's no, there's no indication that additional cardiovascular training is going to lead to a, a longer life 
or decrease all-cause mortality. That seems to be an adequate amount. No, no research has been done to suggest that any more is needed in terms of that benefit, the health benefit. So uh, that's adequate, that's plenty. And so I'm focused almost, almost exclusively on a particularly calorie deficit, stimulating muscle tissue. I don't shorten the rest periods. That's not optimal for hypertrophy. Uh, this, the research seems to suggest somewhere between two to three minutes is, is optimal for muscle hypertrophy. I don't cut that down to 30 seconds. Uh, I have historically. I've seen the research suggest that's not the best thing to do. Um, then it, uh, what I believe is then it becomes more like CrossFit. And I don't think that's what, what uh, people who are training for bodybuilding competitions in particular are trying to do. Uh, not to knock on CrossFit. It's just a completely different type of, of sport. And women need to understand, and this comes directly from, uh, I think, Sandy Williamson, the head of the NPC, the president, of, is she president of the NPC? Um, at every single women's physique figure or bikini show that I've ever been at with an athlete, she says to the, uh, all the women in, uh, before the show, if you want to make, if you want to improve your placing and you want to become better at this sport, you cannot do it by continually dieting more and more and more. You have to add muscle. That's what creates the shape of the body, but that's not what's been happening. The vast majority of women just keep dieting harder and harder and harder, getting lighter and lighter and lighter on the scale, but they're losing muscle. And that doesn't create the tone. They end up, uh, you know, with, with the muscle separates from the skin, they end up looking even worse. It's not full and pushing against, you don't see the definition and the tie-ins. Uh, and so the way I remedy that, and, you know, I, I still work with IFBB Pro bikini figure and, and physique women and, and amateurs as well, I'm working with many right now. Um, and the recommendations that I give them are straight off of Brett Contreras' hypertrophy guide uh, to train every body part twice a week, to um, have about two to three minutes of rest between sets, to train near failure, either 85% max or a lesser amount to, to near failure. Um, to um, increase volume over time. Intensity, of course, I just mentioned was, was to near failure. Uh, and then to select multi-joint movements primarily as your, as your first movement. Uh, and that's squats, you know, deadlifts, benches, chin-ups, dips, um, you know, the multi-joint movements, rather than what I had seen historically is that a lot of people will put a band on, a, have, a, have a woman, uh, put a band on and start doing leg kickbacks for, you know, and you know, got Brett in there. He's got his women doing 400 pound hip thrusters. And that's what changes physiques. That's what adds muscle. And anything that you do that's contrary to that stimulus, I say the same thing about doing cardio too close to an actual hypertrophy session. The mixed signals don't allow the body to figure out what it is that it needs to adapt to. So if you're gonna do some quote unquote cardio, you should do it on a different day or at least six hours apart. And I never have any of my competitors get up at 4 a.m. after five hours of sleep and do cardio. Never happens. Uh, I prefer that they eliminate the cardio altogether. I work with Stephanie Sanzo uh, from, uh, which used to be Steph Fitmom from Australia. And she does three 10-minute walks a day. She used to do 40-minute fasted cardio every morning and, and uh, get another session in the afternoon. She, had, uh, she battled terribly with um, intermittent water retention problems, IBS, uh, uh, you know, she was tired. She was on, a, on a, an extraordinary restriction. I think she was down to 1,350 calories at one time. Um, 
1,250. Now she eats 1,850 calories. She doesn't do any steady state cardio. She just lifts weights. Her IBS is gone. Her body's leaner. She's stronger, has more energy. Uh, sodium obviously helped with that. Uh, so, you know, even if people are able to maintain a similar condition, which I see sometimes happen, they lose a little bit of weight, a discerning eye can tell, um, their lives change in terms of their, their energy, uh, you know, the amount of work that's required, the fluctuations, their menstrual cycles improve, all of those things. Um, if I've deviated too much from the original question, I, I just I wanted to make sure I encompass the fact that, that, um, that, that there's huge benefits to be had from uh, not over-restricting and from doing the right kind of training and giving your body the stimulus it needs. Stan, great answer. Um, just a couple comments I wanted to make. One about the 10 minute walks. You know, I, I started seeing when I started following Mark and Chris and I get out there and, I, you know, I don't call them 10 minutes, but I walk my dogs outside. And I think just getting outside also has some benefit, obviously, as you know, being out in the sunshine. But I wanted to comment a little thing, and this is a kind of a soapbox I've been on over the last couple of years, is when we talk about how we're assessing how we're doing. And um, I know a lot of people like to point to some biomarkers, and it's not that I don't think there, there's utility for that, particularly when they're normal. And again, we would argue, particularly maybe some of these different diet schemes and normal levels are not exactly what we, we think they are based on the standard American diet. But we have to know that things like, you know, vitamin D, it has a 30% diurnal variation. So I, when, when people come with an abnormal value, I have to say, you have to realize it could have been, it could have been affected by what time of the day it is. You know, you point it to your low ALT and AST, if you'd had a really hard training workout a few hours before, it could have bumped that. So people have to realize that those markers, while potentially useful, can be very highly confounded and context-dependent. So you can't put too, almost too much into that. But I do like the, the discussion about the fact that you've had your coronary artery calcium scan as a guy, you know, you know at, at around 50 years of age. That's very important to know what's going on chronically. And then also I think that we can't underestimate the importance of liver fat you know, or visceral fat being such an important marker of long-term chronic health. You know, again, these, these lab values can change hourly even, uh, but these things like liver fat, I mean, that, that represents what's really going on. Um, I, I've come to find out that even things like hemoglobin A1C, which we, we think represent a three-month recording of what's going on with blood sugar, even that is more dynamic than we thought it is. And we've seen, you know, from the Verta Health trial, they, they saw that, and some other doctors have noticed that when people adopt a new diet, that can change more than you think it could over a few, few days. So, Again, at the same time, you know, you're, you're walking around, you said, I'm usually 12% body fat or less. I mean, to me, that and functional and feeling good and your, and your joints are better. To me, that really is what we should be assessing when we look at health. And because some of these other things are adjuncts to that, but some people put too much value in them and don't, don't take it. Because there's a lot of big, fat, sloppy guys out there that have pretty good looking labs. And, and if, if that's what you're going to look at, you can say, hey, man, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I just kind of, I'm trying to get that message out there that we have to put the whole picture in place and not to rely on any one particular measurement because it can be skewed for a lot of reasons. You know, I think that's an excellent point. Um, there are many, many variables. So at one point I, I took vitamin D too much and my calcium went high. And so you have to realize that it increases calcium absorption by 20 folds. So you have to be cautious about that. Uh, you know, and, and like you mentioned, AST, ALT, that's, I get a lot of feedback from folks from creatinine as well. If you, what I find interesting is that last year, Thor and Shaw both, the day after the Arnold, they give them a blood test. And Thor and Shaw's creatinine was through the ceiling. 
I'd never seen it so high. <laughs> and it, it, people don't realize is that you're not really reading the kidney, you're reading the blood. And if there's myoglobin in the blood for muscle tissue breakdown, you're going to see those proteins. And that is affected with AST, ALT as well. So, um, but I did notice, and this is kind of particular to, to me and my athletes, many of the athletes I work with, is that when using uh, or, oral performance enhancing drugs, uh, they are hard on the liver. And you can see, uh, you can definitely see a, an additional rise from that. And that will rob your appetite. And that can kill an athlete, you know, a big athlete's uh, progress. And that's one of the biggest problems I find with powerlifting and strongmen and, and the like, is that once your appetite goes, that, that, and that's generally affected uh, by the liver. As soon as the liver feels that it's, there's a toxic situation, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tell you to quit putting stuff in. Uh, and that's what happens. And I discovered two things. One, when I introduced fruit into the diet, and this is a small dose. This is about 12 grams three times a day, just a half a piece of fruit, four ounces of orange juice. And the literature is clear that, that uh, particularly with fruit, that you know, people instantly think fructose, fatty liver, you know. Uh, high fructose corn syrup. Uh, there's a very big difference between sucking down cans of soda pop and eating a few pieces of fruit a day, huge difference. The, the benefit was is that I noticed my ASTALT came down and my appetite came back. And then when I used that on athletes, they experienced the same thing. Now in extreme, extreme conditions, there's a product called TUDCA, T-U-D-C-A, stands for something I can't pronounce. Um, I know people think milk thistle helps, but I've rarely seen benefit with milk thistle. With myself or my athletes, it seems uh, maybe there's a certain type of milk thistle that I just haven't seen it. And I, I have repeated blood tests from, from myself and my athletes. But TUDCA does seem to help TUDCA significantly reduce ASTALT for athletes who are on uh, particularly oral performance enhancing drugs. So, no, you're absolutely right. Even with C-reactive protein, if you've got a, uh, you know, some sort of bacteria or virus, that's going to be elevated. You have to look at the chronic, potentially chronic elevation. Does it recur, you know, month over month, not just one time? Um, and also, you know, more recently on that same note with respect to blood tests, is I get a lot of people reach out to me because their hematocrit or hemoglobin will be elevated. And their doctor tells them immediately to donate blood. Well, I went through this in the mid-90s. And I went to a specialist before I donated blood because my general practitioner said, you need to go you know, get phlebotomy or donate a pint of blood. The specialist um, uh, at the time that I went to looked at it and kind of chuckled. And I didn't realize it, but he looked at my platelets and my ferritin and said that, that there, there was no reason for me to go donate blood. And that if I did, I could potentially... Uh, be reducing my iron and my platelets to such a point that I might have exhaustion from that. High iron obviously can cause uh, you know, people to, to have fatigue and get tired, and that is something that should be addressed if it's high. Um, but high hemoglobin hematocrit doesn't necessarily mean high iron. And a lot of general practitioners don't realize that. And so what I find is I've seen athletes over donate to get their hematocrit and hemoglobin down, and next thing you know, their ferritin and their uh, platelets are so low that their energy suffers. And I never recommend donating within 30 days of an event, a cardiovascular event. That's a terrible idea. Uh, and people do that. Uh, I just, I see so many little things that, that uh, you know, are, are incorrectly possibly diagnosed or advised upon. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I've experienced it. And I, I've uh, utilized doctors who, who I think are more knowledgeable 
uh, in that specific aspect that, that make better advice. Uh, and you know, the same thing comes the fact when I talk to audiences about hormones effects on body composition and energy. Obviously, if you've got um, you know, hypogonadal, hypothyroid, uh, uh, you're gonna have low energy and, and you can press potentially you know, erectile dysfunction and depression and all the other things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you run to an HRT doctor and get on thyroid and testosterone. Uh, that means that that is a problem that needs remedy, but it could be remedied by increased sleep, increased sunlight exposure, decreased body fat. Um, you know, a lot of those things that, that you could do first. People think that if they can raise their testosterone from 400 to 900, they're going to realize some significant benefit in their performance. And there's no evidence of that. Um, I worked with, uh, you know, Blaine Sumner. He's one of the strongest guys on the planet. 370 pound guy, squats over a thousand pounds. He's just one of the best powerlifters ever. Uh, he's a natural powerlifter. He reached out to me years ago with a, a problem with his hip. I told him to take DECA, <laughs> you know, hey, you know, it works. Take DECA, your hip will be fine. Uh, he said, no, Stan, I'm drug tested. And I kind of chuckled. I said, yeah, you and Michael Hearn both. But in fact, he was drug tested and he was natural. And he wouldn't even take, um, you know, TB500 and BPC-157. He couldn't even take, um, uh, you know, peptides. So uh, I recommended that he follow the same protocol that I did with, um, uh, with Mark Philippi at the time, which was, a, you know, more of the same kind of stuff, find pain-free movements, move a lot, lots of blood. Um, and he ended up, you know, rehabbing and continuing to compete as I did previously with the same type of problem. But uh, long story short is his testosterone level from his blood test was 400. One of the strongest men on the planet completely changed the way I thought about testosterone in the normal range and how little uh, you know, how, how small of an indicator that is in comparison to a number of other things. If you've got ED and depression and uh, a body composition, you know, significant body composition change for the worse, uh, then maybe that, that is one contributing factor. But none of the, but the problem with, with testosterone therapy is this. And I, I know a friend who owns about a dozen of these clinics uh, in LA, Arizona and Texas and, and the like. And he says the number one problem is compliance. I asked him, is this a good business? I wanted to open one of those businesses. And he says, he says, people are only with you for three or four months. They get some initial effect. And generally, a lot of that can be attributable to the fact that they eat better and, and start exercising when they initially get on an HRT program. Uh, and then after a while, they stop eating better and stop exercising and then realize that and they're taking testosterone, but don't feel like it's giving them any more benefits. And so that they, they just don't comply anymore. He says his average customers with him for three or four months uh, because they think that that's the panacea, that that's the answer to everything. That if I take more testosterone, then I'm going to be bigger, stronger, faster, leaner, healthier uh, in the absence of better sleep, better hydration, exercise, and all of that, better nutrition. So, uh, you know, those things become inseparable. I, I hate talking about anything in my diet. I hate even calling it a diet because the first thing I address is sleep and hydration and nutrition uh, and exercise, the 10-minute walks. None of it can happen to the exclusion of any of the rest of it. If you want a significant benefit, it's a concert, you know, it's an orchestra, and all the instruments have to be there. Stan, let me, sorry, Zach. I apologize, Zach, I'm being so manipulative here, but I mean, just great stuff. You know, Stan, I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, Stu Phillips out of McMaster earlier this year put out a, a paper 
looking at testosterone and, and strength building uh, in lean or in, in young, uh, you know, recreation trained athletes. And they found that um, it didn't matter what their level of testosterone was to predict strength or muscle gain. It was all about the androgen receptor density. Now, yeah. now that is what, that's what the research shows. And so that, that, that sort of comports. And I've heard of a number of other strong athletes, same thing, said their testosterone levels tested out very low. And myself, I had a testosterone test, which is extremely low. And the vegans call me this, you know, grandma, grandma testosterone. Look, I'm in here just kicking ass. So, but it's interesting because there are a number of things that will stimulate androgen receptor density. One of those, there is some evidence that maybe carnitine, which is found in red meat, might yep. potentially do that. We know that strength training will do that. We know that meal frequency may have an impact on that. But the other thing is, and this, this pertains to the guys that say, yeah, but there's a lot of guys on juice that are huge. We do know that exogenous supplementation can also upregulate that androgen receptor density. And that's why we see bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger guys, the more dosages they take. And so it's, you know, your point about, I say this all the time, I think there's far too many people on HRT that haven't done the things they should have done ahead of time. They could have fixed their diet. They could have fixed their sleep. They could have trained better. They could have fixed their stress. You could have gotten outside and done the walks. And I think that, I mean, that would probably take care of 90% of the guys that think that, you know, these fat guys that are just, I need to get on HRT and the doctors are too damn lazy to do anything else besides scribble out a prescription. You know, it drives me crazy. And I think, you know, again, in my view, there's some people that clearly are going to need it, but I think there's plenty of people that could just benefit from lifestyle measures. Yeah, I did a video on testosterone therapy and I spoke about those guys uh, who take testosterone, but don't change their eating or training habits. Uh, generally speaking, most of those receptors are in the shoulders and upper back. Uh, and so they, they you, you, you see these guys coming from a mile away. I, and I hate, <laughs> you know, I just, I hate to be cynical about it, but they end up eating more as a result. And I find that with a lot of people that, that, that train, I'm cautious about how much training I put in a, a dieters program because, uh, they go to the gym and train hard. And then two things happen. One, they eat more and two, what's called compensation. They sit more because they're tired. <laughs> And uh, that's not a good way to, to, to uh, effectively, you know, implement a weight loss program by eating more and sitting more. Uh, but what I find is, is that a lot of these guys that get on testosterone therapy and, and suddenly they go from a, uh, wearing a large shirt to a medium, uh, their, their bellies start growing at the same rate as their back and shoulders, their upper back and shoulders. Uh, and, I, and it's not healthy because that, that is where the visceral fat is, that is where uh, a lot of this metabolic syndrome comes from. And, uh, so I, I have to be cautious with that. And of course, you know, uh, extra physiological doses can absolutely uh, lead to more muscle tissue growth. But uh, generally what I see happen is that people add a lot of body fat at the same time. Dr. Stu Phillips has some great research. I, I think he was also one that did the research on uh, increased dairy intake showed uh, an improvement in lean body mass and um, uh, bone mineral density. Because uh, people a lot of times, you know, they they, de they uh, demonize dairy and, you know, reasonably so if, if you're lactose intolerant or have a casein allergy, but otherwise uh, calcium can be pretty important, uh, uh, not just for the bones, but, uh, you know, also for uh, the electro electrical signaling of the body. Um, and we've seen some research both in animals and humans that the more calcium in the cell, the, the faster the rate at which um, they can burn fat. So there are some important benefits to calcium. I, I don't suggest a gallon of milk a day, but I do half a serving of, of Greek yogurt or a cheddar cheese uh, just because I want a broad range of micronutrients in the diet. So. 
Stan, this wonderful stuff. I mean, we kept you for far longer than, than we thought. I, I mean, I, you've got so much wisdom there, and this is going to be, I mean, people are going to just love this. It's one of the, it's one of the Zach, this, if I'm not mistaken, this may be our longest show so far. So I think so, yeah. I, yeah. I, I unfortunately got to get to the airport. I got to run up at Stan. I think, uh, are you going to be, yeah. I think you're going to be in Southern California near here. I think I saw you said you're doing something down in Oceanside or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm probably as bad as you. We, my daughter's seventh birthday is coming up, and so we're taking her to Legoland, okay. which is just near Oceanside. So I use that as an opportunity to um, host a <laughs> seminar in Oceanside at Metroflex Gym. So <laughs> always working. I always want to get out and meet and greet and talk to folks. And, and you know, I just think the best way to do that is to, is to get, get, you know, face to face and uh, I, I get a lot of questions from people and it really helps me refine my message and get feedback on what works and what doesn't work. And so, yeah, Oceanside, March 23rd, 11 a.m. Uh, I've got a seminar listed on my website right now. I'm going to go. Uh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm not too far from there, Stan. Maybe I'll, I'll have to hook up with you while you're down or something like that. Go get a steak or something like that. I don't know. You know, we'll see. I'm going to squat. You can come squat. <laughs> yeah, that's hey, Stan, hey, hey, Stan, if you got yeah. just like a minute to give me a yay, nay, or on the right track with something, I did have one other question I wanted to ask you because uh, I know you have like, you'll, you see probably this happening all the time is every once in a while I'll be doing like a consult or coaching a client and they'll come in with all the ambition in the world and they'll want to do all the hacks like the, the ice baths, the sauna, the fasting, and then the, and they're ready to hit the ground running in the training too. And one thing I tell them is think of stress as something that can come from anything, whether that be like your relationships, your family life, your workouts, your job, all that stuff. And even though all those things that I listed can be good stressors, where if you stress them in the right quantity, you're going to get an adaptation and get stronger. If you do too much of it all at once, you're going to find yourself in a bad spot. Do you see that happening a lot? And am I on the right track with pick and choose your battles wisely when you're introducing the fitness hacks and certainly don't try to do them all at one time? Yeah, it's a bucket, and you can fill it from a variety of different sources, but that bucket has a limit. I did a rant called Stress for Success, where I talked about the importance of the fundamentals, and that's you don't want to be compromising sleep. Uh, you want to get some regular exercise, uh, hence something that's sustainable, it's easy, anybody can do. If I put somebody on a 40-minute treadmill, the likelihood they're going to do that consistently, uh, you know, with life's demands and kids and work and everything else is pretty slim. Uh, and then with the nutrition program, uh, as I mentioned, the research suggests that, uh, you know, compliance is the science and whatever program you decide to do, I just ask that they measure their food initially. And if they're not losing weight, then whatever diet they're on, they can just decrease the amount across the board. They can go from six ounces of meat to five. They can go from half a cup of potato to a quarter. Uh, just whatever diet they want to get on, whether it's intermittent fasting or it's paleo or it's carnivore or it's vertical, uh, they need to keep track of what they eat. And here's why. Two big reasons. Uh, one is variety. Although people like to, to promote um, uh, you know, flexible dieting, etc., people tend to overeat. Food, the food reward is too good. When you're eating different foods all the time, you tend to overeat, and that's a problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, second to that is we're, we're terrible at estimating the amount, uh, the amount of calories in food. And so when you, when you switch from this restaurant to that restaurant or to, from this food to that food, the labels are off, the quantities are off, your ability to judge the amounts is off. 
So I try and keep it really simple. I, um, and you see this, you know, the National Weight Loss Registry is a good place to go to look at people who have lost over 10% of their body weight and kept it off for at least a year have um, the National Weight Loss Registry kind of tracks how they do it. The vast majority of them tend to eat the same thing pretty regularly. They tend to eat breakfast uh, pretty regularly. Uh, they uh, you know, tend to exercise pretty regularly. 85% um, of them weigh themselves regularly. So uh, you know, there's lots of things that, that success leaves clues. Uh, and while my recommendations may seem restrictive at times, I just look at what works, what improves compliance, um, and you know, it, it just appears that most people are able to, it, another big thing, I, I should say this while I'm on that note, compliance has been studied and it's a meta-analysis has been done on all the diets and, and what, where people realize the most success and the least successful is a clinician uh, followed by um, a, uh, say a wearable or some sort of tracker. Uh, the most successful is uh, meal prep. Whether you prep or you buy food from a prep company, whether it be Weight Watchers, or obviously this sounds like I'm trying to sell my vertical meals prep company, but I don't care if it's, if it's uh, you know, Jenny Craig or, or whether you prep your own meals and put them in Tupperware and measure them and put them in your refrigerator and that's all you can eat. Those people by far have the best success when you track your meals, any kind of meals, whether it's the keto diet or carnivore diet or a paleo diet, Whatever it is, prep it in advance. This is what you eat. You've got it sitting there for you. Because when we're left to our own druthers to pick and choose and to forage through restaurants or at the airport or eat when you're hungry, you tend to eat too much. Uh, one of the big things that, that I'm coming out with now, uh, I've been working on it for a year, but I've submitted it to Apple and it should be out in a couple of weeks. It's called the My Vertical Tracker app. And it's all about compliance. It's about people getting a checklist and every day, um, you know, weighing in, uh, that just seems to work. You know, as much as people hate the thought of it, it seems to work. And most people who have successful weight loss at the National Weight Loss Control Registry, they weigh in. Over 85% of them weigh in regularly. Um, you know, it's, it's what's called the Hawthorne effect. You know, when you watch people, they tend to self-modify behavior. Uh, the same way they lie to their doctors or misreport on surveys for epidemiological research, they, when you watch people, they tend to self-modify their behavior. And so, my app is intended to help people uh, watch themselves and uh, I'll use it as a tracker on my clients so I can see whether or not they took their 10 minute walks every day, what they weighed each morning, they can update their, um, their, uh, their pictures, uh, they can take pictures of their foods and I can see it real time, it's time and date stamped if I wanna look at what they ate yesterday, I could just look at the pictures of every meal they ate. Uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's just a way of, of holding themselves accountable by having a daily checklist and then working with a coach so the coach can also help them uh, become accountable. So I don't know how far I strayed from the original question, but that's, uh, those are all things I think are perfect. No, perfect. Yeah, no, Stan, you're a force for good in the world. Zach, can you help? Let, let's, let's get it shut down. And let, let folks yeah. Out. Yeah. It was Stan. Thanks for coming. Guys. Thank, thank you so much. On. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at 
hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.